0: Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to return this morning briefly to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. It's the very end of the chapter here in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. This will provide a little context for us before we go to our psalm of the month, which is Psalm 55. Psalm 55. So in a moment, we'll look at Psalm 55, but first, let's read together from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Hear now the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only... What do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Jesus holds up for us the impossible standard of the law. I don't know about you, but I have always been disturbed by verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The only thing more unattainable than perfection is a perfection on par with divinity. This seems too hopelessly out of reach. Indeed, we go back to the beginning of these verses and we see that Jesus holds up for for us this equally impossible task. When your enemy wants to mistreat you, be loving. When hatred is poured out upon you, be loving. And if we wanted somehow to, you know, squirrel our way around this principle or somehow lawyer our way through all the details of it, Jesus in verse 43 lays down the boom and says, no, love your neighbor and your enemy. This is what I mean. But I think what we should actually be most stunned by is not this impossible ethic. Ethic. Not this overwhelming, soul-crushing law. But the fact that Jesus says, because that is exactly what God does. You think it's hard to love your enemy? Imagine being thrice holy. Eternally, immutably, and unchangeably just. And then loving your enemy. This is the superlative impossibility that is set upon us as humans... And yet it is simultaneously the superlative perfection of our Heavenly Father. How are we able to love our enemies by first recovering the truth that while we were yet His enemies, He loved us. It takes a love greater than what we have naturally. It takes a supernatural love, a divine love, a love that can only come from God. And so when we know how much He has loved us, then we are able to love one another. With this in mind, turn back to Psalm 55. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 55. We have gone through 54 Psalms and 54 months of my pastoral ministry. Psalm 55 brings us to the 55th month. I'm tempted to make a joke, Tim, but I'll let it go. (laughs) Psalm 55, Lord willing, not my final psalm of the month. (laughs) Psalm 55, the psalm of the month for us this month to meditate upon, to teach us to pray, to train us to go to our Father in heaven. Psalm 55, hear again the word of the Lord. To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me, for I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in the city day and night. They go around it on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and we walked to the house of God in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwelling and among them. But as for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon... I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. Selah. Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. He has put forth His hands against those who were at peace with Him. He has broken His covenant. The words of His mouth were smoother than butter. But war was in His heart. His words were softer than oil. They were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord. And He shall, never, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O oh God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. But I will trust you. Amen. And amen. In the early 1800s, Americans were feeling pretty good. We had thrown out the Brits twice. We had acquired the western two-thirds of our continent... We were expanding rapidly into it. We were leading the charge in industrialization and urbanization. Historians looking back see all the halcyon, nostalgic, rose colored features of that era and labeled it the era of good feelings. I wonder if future historians will look back at these few years we've gone through and call them the era of bad feelings. I mean, look around. Our days are not all that different than the era of good feelings in terms of enjoying remarkable prosperity, peace, and well-being. And yet, the hallmark of our society today is not optimism. The watchword is not hope. As Tim prayed, we have been through a tough week. We're living in a tough world. I doubt there is anyone... In these pews, certainly not those of you who I know your story and I know what you've been through this week, who's not coming in here with the weight of the world on their shoulders. I mean, do we not see the urgency of the Ukraine and the awful chaos of the war? Do we not feel the agony of our denomination and our congregation? Do we not see the grief of our marriages? Of our children and of our parents? Do we not feel the frailty of the diseases and our bodies, the nearness of our death? Those who weep and those who mourn. Friends, we could go around the room, even as Tim did in his prayer, and we can tap a finger on nearly every household that makes up this congregation and say, here is a sin, here is a sorrow. And yet, my friends, Psalm 55 was written for you. You see, Psalm 55 has good news. The good news that you so seldom find on the social media platforms of this world. The the good news that you so seldom find in the TV, in the internet, in the cell phone. In fact, I challenge you, you have to get rid of the electronic medium to find the good news more often than not. Dear friends, there is good news from this pulpit, good news from this psalm. It is this. God's grace is greater than the world's sin. And boy, do we need that, don't we? Boy, do our hearts need that. Because you know what? In an hour, you're going to leave the building and you're going to forget. And this tsunami of sin and sorrow is going to rush over your soul and all of a sudden... You're going to forget God's grace is greater than the world's sin. And so Psalm 55 is given to us as a memorial, as a tool to train us to pray. That we might become people who know, who believe, and who practice that truth. That God's grace is greater than the world's sin. And so Psalm 55 would teach us to talk to God. To teach us to pray when times are tough. Let's look at this psalm together. Notice in verses 1 and 2, David introduces us to the fact that he prays. David prays, verses 1 and 2. Give ear to my prayer, O God. This psalm, which is given to the chief musician in the subtitle, that the musician should lead the assembly of the Lord in worship. In David's day, this was a Levitical choir, trained by the specialists to sing in the temple. In today's world, it is all who are united to Christ, and by faith, the congregation of Christ sings with their chief musician, Jesus. This is a psalm of Jesus, which he, as chief musician, leads us in singing. It says that it is with stringed instruments, but as they note in your footnote, depending on your Bible they actually don't know what the word means. And they just made up the stringed instruments part because they think it's some sort of musical thing. If we actually look at the word in the rest of the Old Testament, I pointed this out last month with Psalm 54, the word is used repeatedly and exclusively for those songs which mock or taunt someone who is suffering. So the psalm is clearly not with stringed instruments. In fact, it is accompanied by the mocking and the taunting of the world. David is bringing forth this psalm that the church of Jesus Christ might sing it with Jesus Christ in those sorrow-filled hours when sinful people mock and taunt them. He says it is a contemplation. It is a prayer and a song that David is embedding in the heart of the church from his deep thought and consideration of sin and sorrow in the world. But not only does he call it this prayer, but notice in verses 1 and 2, he calls it a supplication, he calls it a complaint, and he calls it a noisy moan. You see, we more often than not like our prayers polite. We like them clean and well-ordered. I celebrate the fact, just actually a few minutes ago, I was celebrating the fact that one of my ruling elders is a well-ordered engineer who structures his prayer, have you ever noticed that? With great carefulness and thoughtfulness. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. If you ever listen to my pastoral prayers when I'm leading, I'm like praying for this over here, and then I'm over here, and then I'm over here, you know, It's it's, there's just random. But tonight, we'll gather together at 6 p.m. on Zoom, and, and we'll follow in order, and we'll follow a pattern. There is a proper place for us to pray in a disciplined, structured way. But David says, that's not the kind of prayer I'm talking about. Not this time. No, Psalm 55 is that desperate, angst-filled prayer that comes leaping from the soul like a visceral scream. He says, this is my supplication. His pleading, his begging... He's not simply saying, you know, Lord, this would be nice. You know that little pious refrain we like to tack onto our prayers, if it be your will? David's not tacking that one on. David is desperate. David is begging. He is pleading. He is supplicating. Lord, hear me and do not hide from me. He says in verse 2, I am restless in my complaint. He admits it. I'm whining. I'm complaining. David postures his prayer like a toddler before a parent. And he whines, he complains. In fact, he says, thirdly, I noisily noisily moan. This isn't the quiet little groan in his heart. This is a loud, loud groaning and gasping for breath. A heaving and a sighing. There is a violence to this prayer. David wants God's attention Attend to me, hear me. And like an infant or toddler, he does everything in his power to gain his father's attention. I'm tempted to use the illustration. Have you ever seen an infant or toddler try to get the parent's attention? Say in worship. Have you ever noticed the sweet sounds of worship our infants and toddlers make in this room? When they long for a parent's attention. This is the kind of prayer David wants us to pray. This is the kind of prayer that he models for us in Psalm 55. Not the neat, polite, well ordered prayer of which there is a proper place. This is the desperate, heart filled, passionate, without any shred of pride left kind of prayer in which David moans, groans, cries, complains. If this is an entirely foreign concept to you, let me gently suggest your life is unusually well-charmed, or you are unusually proud. When we experience the overwhelming sin and sorrow of this life, And we mask ourselves up before God. Instead of laying bare the raw truth of our broken humanity. We miss the glory and the comfort that comes to us in a psalm like Psalm 55. Let me make this point powerfully. Jesus himself lay face down in the grass of Gethsemane. Sweating drops of blood and screaming, take this cup from me. He knew the intensity of Psalm 55. He trained his heart to pray, but Father, not my will, your will be done. In a wrestling match greater than Jacob at Peniel, Jesus was in the garden wrestling with himself. Complaining, moaning, crying out, begging for God. Indeed, when he hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Both David and Jesus model for us the truth. Sometimes we are in seasons where we just got to cry ugly and pray ugly. And that's okay. That's okay. It hurts and it's hard. And so we pray. David, in order to teach us to pray as he prays, with authenticity, with depth of feeling, with outpouring of loudness and energy, teaches us two principles that will make us pray. The first is, we need it. The second is, God hears it. I've told the story before of how when I was at Geneva College in a Bible class, my professor would always begin the lecture with the words, Let's pray because we need it. It was really cool when Ben Wiegers came home from Geneva that first break and confirmed that Dr. Curtis was still starting his lectures with that line. In my family worship, we have begun to add the refrain because God hears it as well. This is the structure of the psalm, the first rule that we need to learn in order to be passionate in our prayers, to indeed be pathetic in our prayers, is that we need it. David makes this point in verses 3 through 8, in which he lays out for us, in a poetic Hebrew style, three sets of three. First, he gives us three external problems. Then he gives us three internal problems. Then he gives us three desires for those problems. First, in verse 3, He says that there are three external problems that are producing his need of prayer. Number one, the voice of the enemy. Number two, the oppression of the wicked. And number three, the trouble and hatred they bring down upon me. Immediately, like a good American, you shout out, Pastor, you said three, but there was four. I know, David Chief, that's another style of Hebrew poetry. You know how he says in Proverbs and how he says in the Prophets, For three, no, for four. For five, no, for six. For six, no, for seven. David follows the same Hebrew pattern in verse three. He gives three, no, it's really four reasons why he is praying. The enemy's voice, the wicked's oppression, the hate-filled trouble that they bring down upon him. David says he is surrounded by problems externally. But then in verses four and five, he seeks to free internal problems. His heart is severely pained. Terrors of death have come upon him. And then lastly, again, number three or four, however you want to count it. Fearfulness and trembling and horror have come upon him and overwhelmed him. David says, inasmuch as I have enemies and wicked ones all around me, hating me, bearing down upon me, so within me I am insufficient for the task. The enemies around him convince him that he is internally insufficient. His heart is pain. The terrors of death fall upon him. He is overwhelmed with fear, trembling, and horror. Out of curiosity, does anyone recognize this poet anymore? Because this is the same guy that stared Goliath face to face and knocked him dead with a rock. David is not a wimp. David is not a coward. And yet David is terrified at the perilous threat that is about him. He is simply overwhelmed by the sin and the sorrow. And so he expresses three wishes. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. He wishes he was no longer human. He wishes that he had a power that belongs to birds that he could escape. How many of you have sat around in a season of your life and thought, you know, I wish I was a pigeon? I mean, David doesn't pick the soaring majesty of an eagle. That would be exciting. To be up high in the drafts of the breeze, far from all the problems. David doesn't reach so high. Man, it would be wonderful to be a peregrine falcon tucked in flight 200 miles an hour, zooming toward the earth. No, David doesn't pick that one. He picks the pigeon. Oh, I wish I was a dove. I wish I just could get away. I just wish there was relief, escape. His second desire, that I would go far off and remain in the wilderness. David's second desire is not only that he could get away, but that he could get as far away as is possible. Notice again, like the dove, David's wish is not a particularly compelling one. I wish I was in the land of the wilderness, you know, where there's no food, no friends, no family, and no water. How many of you have sat around and been doing that? You know what I really want in life? To be hungry and thirsty and alone. That's what David says. I am so overwhelmed by the sin around me and the sorrow within me that I'd be happy for the first escape route. As long as it's as far away as I can get. Thirdly, David says in verse 8, I would hasten my escape from windy storm and tempest. He wishes that the escape route would appear as quickly as possible. He doesn't want to plan this. He doesn't want to strategize this. He doesn't want to wrestle through this. He just wants out and he wants out now. How many of you can relate to this? The sins around me are too many. The sorrows within me are too great. I'm done. Let me out. Friends, have you ever prayed, I'm done, let me out? Have you? Have you ever felt that depth of darkness in your heart, that level of despair, that sense of hopelessness and helplessness? I have, and it's not a bad place to be. Because we find prayer. Because we find we're not alone. Because what happened to Israel when they went off into the wilderness? God was there and He was with them. My friends, when the sins of this world seem too many and the sorrows of your heart seem too great, it's okay. To say, I am not enough. You're not. And you're not meant to be. When we come to the emptiness, this hole, this husk of humanity that we once were, hollowed out by all we have suffered and all we have endured, and at last we sit down and say, I'm at the end of my rope, we find that rope wasn't what we needed. It was Jesus. Beloved, this is how we become prayers. Passionate, pathetic, energetic prayers. We empty ourselves out under the weight of the sin and misery of this world. We recognize the reality of the world we are in and we go running to our Heavenly Father. David, to hasten this point, to deepen this point, gives two examples of how overwhelming the sin and sorrow of his life was. First, in verses 9-11, through He notes that he lives in the midst of an extraordinarily sinful city. He says that he has seen violence and strife in the city. Not only has he seen violence and strife in the city, but he sees it day and night. It is an endless and relentless presence. Violence and strife are omnipresent in the city. What is more, he says that they go around on the walls. That is, violence and strife walk around the walls of the city. By this, he means the military presence. In our modern language, David is referring to a military oppression of the city. He's referring to police brutality and police abuse. He's referring to the corruption and the hardness that comes to the hearts of those who are in power. They are there on the walls. They are meant to keep bad guys out and good guys in. But David says they have confused their role. They have instead become walking violence and walking strife. And they have hurt the occupants of the city. David adds to this that iniquity and trouble are in the midst of it. Destruction is in the midst of it. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. That is, it is not merely those who are in authority. They are on the walls, misusing their power for the oppression of others. It is the everyday citizens and residents down in their homes who are acting in like manner. It is the businessman. It is the shopkeeper. It is the shopper. David looks around and from the very center of the city to the very outside of the city. From its walls to its heart, it is a city full of violence, strife, iniquity, trouble, destruction, oppression, and deceit. This, too, was Jesus' experience. Do you remember what he had waiting for him in Jerusalem? The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, don't go out to Jerusalem, Herod wants to kill you. Jesus said to his disciples repeatedly, when I go up to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me and kill me. Jesus knows what it's like to walk into a city full of violence and strife. He knows what it's like to live in a people who want to destroy, oppress, and deceive, who want to corrupt their every work, economically, politically, and otherwise. And my friends, it's not so indifferent than our world, is it? It's not so indifferent than our experience in America or what we see in the news. We live in a world torn apart by oppression, deceit, violence, and strife. And our hearts are pained within us. The terrors of death fall upon us. Enemies about us, sorrows within us. But this psalm gives us this comfort That we are not alone. David has been here before. And he knows where he's going. Jesus has been here before. And they have found that in that city of oppression, in that city of destruction, in that city of sin, there is still room for prayer. There is still room to turn the hand of the oppressor back with prayer. To move the arm of omnipotence with prayer. And to see God strive with the oppressor because we pray. Friends, we pray because we need it. We pray because the cities in which we live, this world in which we live, is too sinful for us. We are overmatched and overwhelmed. And we need a God who intervenes. A God who hears prayer. But the second illustration that David gives comes a little closer to home. Literally. David acknowledges that not only does he live in a sin filled city that gives him no safe place in which to dwell, but he lives in a city that is governed by a wicked king. In verses 12 through 15, David prays about an enemy, an enemy who reproaches him, who exalts himself against him, but not the kind he's used to, not the kind that he understands or knows. You see the enemy who hates him and exalts himself against him like the Philistines, like Goliath he knows how to deal with them but how do you deal with the fact that your enemy your oppressor is now the king and head of the church indeed it is Saul the monarch of Israel he says I know how to hide from Goliath in fact I know how to kill him I know how to hide from the Philistines I know how to fight them How do I fight him when he's the king of Israel? When he's you, my man, my equal. By this, David may mean a fellow member of Israel, a co-Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a child of Jacob. And he says, we're members of the church together for crying out loud. You are my equal. And then he adds, perhaps we are also both the anointed." Do you remember how David revered the anointing of God on Saul? No one can touch him. He has been anointed by God. Twice, David says, you can't kill Saul. He's been anointed by God to be king. But Saul did not reciprocate. He didn't see David as an anointed king. He didn't even see him as a fellow human. Saul had no sense of the equality of David. No sense of the shared humanity of David. David was a monster to be destroyed, a beast of burden to be used and cast aside. David says he's my companion and acquaintance, someone I knew closely, intimately. We were friends. We took sweet counsel together. He was king, I was general. We fought battles together. We planned battle strategies together. We walked to the house of God in the throng. We worshipped together. We prayed together. David says, this, verse 12, is what I cannot bear. Do you see that? David says, I can bear the sin-filled city. I get it. The world is filled with iniquity and transgression. It fills me with the fear of death. It fills me with terror and with dread. But I can bear it. You know what I can't bear? My friends and family. That's what David says. Those who are closest. Who have hurt him. This too Jesus knows. What is remarkable. Is that Judas his disciple would spend three years eating with him. Would spend three years sleeping in the grass with him. Would spend three years listening to him teach. Teach. Watching him preach and heal and save and multiply the bread and the fish and all the wonders that Jesus did. Judas had a front row seat to all that love, all that grace, all that wisdom. But even more remarkable than that is that when Jesus chose him, in Mark's gospel it says that Jesus wanted Judas with him. Jesus knew he knew Judas would betray him. He knew that the unbearable sorrow would be the abandonment of his eleven disciples and the betrayal of the twelve. That he would be naked and alone in this world, suffering all the sorrows that sinful humans could hurl at him. And yet Jesus wanted them with him. Such love, such grace. It's extraordinary. This is what teaches us to pray. We find unbearable this abandonment and this betrayal, rightly so. But we have one to whom we can go who understands the intensity of that agony, the depth of that sorrow, the greatness of that grief. Beloved, this is why we pray. We need it. Oh, how we need it. We are no match for the sin around us, the sorrow within us. We need a God. David prays, notice in verses 9 and 15. He prays prayers we're uncomfortable with. He says, destroy them, divide their tongues. This he prays of the sin-filled city. He prays for the destruction of the sinful city. That it would have its tongues divided. This reference takes us back to the Tower of Babel in which David is referencing God's intervention to divide the people in their language so that they could not unite together in their wickedness. He says, This is a city like Babel, given entirely over to its depravity, resolved to work unrighteousness and wickedness in all its ends. So, Lord, divide their tongues, break up their unholy alliance, ruin their power. This is the dream of the Western nations regarding Russia right now. That by economic sanctions we would divide their power. We would erode the strength of its military. This is what David prays God would do. How do we answer the extraordinary wickedness and violence that is not simply far off in Europe, but right here in these bloodstream streets of America? How do we answer the violence and the strife that marks so many of our homes, so many of our own hearts? We pray, Lord, remove the power that oppresses. Lord, divide us from the unholy alliances. Still again, David prays in verse 15, let death seize them. Let death drag them down alive to hell. Boy, we don't like praying this, do we? We like the nice prayers. We like the polite prayers. These curses and these imprecations, they are hard even for the hurting heart to pray. David in a word in verse 15 is praying. Lord, they have given hell a home here on earth. Give them a home in hell soon. If they will unleash evil here, then O Lord, unleash justice there. There are, my friends, a few comforts that we should take from this. One, we have a God of justice. A God who does what is right and good. Who eradicates wickedness from all dwellings. Who will purify and sanctify this world. The sinful city will indeed be once more the new Jerusalem. Dressed in righteousness and holiness. The sinful rulers and authorities of this age will come crashing down. And one day there shall be one king supreme, even Jesus Christ. And so we pray. We pray because our God is great enough in his grace to bring an end to sin-filled cities and sinful kings. He is able to bring justice to the most unjust situations. There is another comfort we can take from this. David never lifted his hand against Saul. He guarded his life jealously. And when Saul at last was seized by death and drugged down into the grave, for that is the meaning of the Hebrew here, David mourned him. David wept for him. And David wrote a song for him. Let me remind you, Saul hunted him like an animal. Saul sought to kill him while David sang to him. Saul gave him his daughter as a way to trap him so that he could be slaughtered by Philistines. At every turn, Saul was an awful, sin-filled oppressor. And to his dying day, David mourned him. How could David remain so compassionate and loving toward his enemy Saul? Because he prayed stuff like this. Because he handed the issue to God and said, you deal with it. He delivered himself out of the sorrow within, the sin without, by praying and casting his cares upon God. This is where David now turns And in verse 16 says, I will call upon God. You see, my friends, David has learned to pray because he has learned that he is hopeless and helpless to do otherwise. The intensity of this world's sin and sorrow, the intensity of his own inward grief is too great for him. And so in despair, he goes to prayer. But David in the second half of the psalm lays out for us this extraordinary encouragement that we do not merely go to prayer because we've run out of other options. That is our normal pattern, and we must break it. How often have you said, Well, I have nothing else I can do, so I pray. Oh, my friends, that is so true when you first started the process. It's just sad it took you so long to realize it. We go through all these other efforts only to conclude, All I can do is pray. My friends, that was true an hour ago. We just didn't know it yet. That was true a year ago. We just didn't know it yet. All we can do is pray. And yet it is the first and best thing we can do. David says, as for me, though the city is full of sin, though the king is full of sin, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. David says it's that simple. I pray he saves. That's the deal. That's our relationship." Here is the David divine covenant. I'm going to pray he's going to save. That's how we're going to do this. This is how David understood it when he faced Goliath. This is how David understands it when he must run from Saul. This is how David will understand it when the day comes that Absalom arises against him. I will pray he will save. That's our relationship. My friends, we need this too. To believe this. But he doesn't just pray once and he's done with it. He says, Evening, morning, and at noon, I shall pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. David will not simply pray, he will pray persistently. I will pray evening, morning, and noon. This is the Hebrew cycle for a day. I'm going to pray all day long. I'm going to pray incessantly. I'm going to pray, as Paul says, without ceasing. David not only prays, he prays with persistence and with passion. Notice in verse 17, he says, I will cry aloud, and he will hear my voice. David says, I'm not going to just pray in my mind. I'm not just going to pray with my internal thoughts. It's a good way to pray. But when David is desperate and dire, he says, I'm going to pray with volume and intensity. I'm going to cry aloud and make sure that the highest heaven hears me. This is sweet prayer, my friends, that we should pray with such passion. And know our need for God. David says it is because he has redeemed my soul from battle. He will adhere. He will afflict. He abides from of old. Knowing who God is. And knowing God's history. David finds himself inspired to pray. Excited to pray. Do you see friends. That first. When we see the emptiness of our strength. We are moved to pray. But secondly, when we see the fullness of God's strength, we are moved to pray. We pray not only because we need it and we are so dreadfully insufficient. We pray also because He hears it and is able to answer. He redeems us in peace in the middle of battle, though there are many against us. He afflicts our enemies and abides from of old. This is the ancient, immutable truth of God. He hears prayer and he answers prayer. This is why we pray. But then, my friends, David notes. Notice the Selah breaks up right in the middle of his refrain here. That they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. And so they break their covenant of peace. Saul's words were smooth as butter and softer than oil. Saul said to David, good job my warrior, thank you for defeating my enemies. Saul said to David, come, be my son-in-law, marry my daughter. But all the while he was hurling spears at him. Literally, not figuratively. His hands, though they should have been at peace, were instead breaking the covenant. For he did not fear God. For he did not know who God was or what God had done Saul was not a man of prayer. He was a man of war and of striving. A man to draw swords and to pierce his closest friends. To even curse publicly his firstborn son, Jonathan, when Jonathan befriended David. This is a man corrupted by his godlessness. But David stands in contrast in our psalm saying, I have seen God, I know God, and out of the fullness of God, I pray to him. David then turns and sets before his audience the only address directly to us. There's this strange kind of moment in the psalm. Have you ever caught that when you're praying with someone and all of a sudden you realize that they're trying to like talk to you in their prayer? They're they're giving you information, you know, information God knows, but you don't know. David, as it were, is is praying to God and saying, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless, but not you, Lord. You're strong, you're a helper. And then he turns to his unseen audience, his fellow prayers, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. Knowing that this will go into the praises of the people of God, that this will embed itself in the worship of God, he says, you shall know Through your prayer, the permanence, and not be moved. You shall know the safety and the security of a God who hears prayer. By contrast, in verse 23, he says that it is the wicked, bloodthirsty, and deceitful who are brought down to the pit of destruction. They are the ones who are moved. David stands in the midst of a sinful city, and through prayer recovers this vision of the world that is true and right. This sinful city will not last. We will. He looks upon the sinful powers that reign over us. And because of prayer, he grasps the truth, the reality of this world. These sinful authorities will not last. But we will. But Christ will. These men, they will not live out half their days. The empires of this age will come crashing down. The kingdoms of this world will all be swept away. Death shall come for them in a moment. And hell shall rise up to greet them. And a God of justice will set right all that we have made a mess. But David has only learned to see the world with this clarity. Because he prayed. Because he stared God in the face. And he remembered who God really is. And who he really is. What is extraordinary about this psalm is it maps with the life of Christ. That Christ, the chief musician, who had David write this on his behalf, so that all the church in all the ages should know the very heart of Christ, he prayed as David prayed with passion, with persistence. He prayed because he knew the helplessness and the hopelessness that sin and sorrow brought upon the world. He stood beside the grave of Lazarus knowing that in 10 seconds he was going to raise him from the dead. And in John eleven thirty five, 35, what did he do anyway? He wept. Because he knew the awful price of sin and sorrow. But he also knew his father's power to save This last portion of the psalm maps against the life of Christ in such an extraordinary way. David teaches us to cast our cares upon the Lord, knowing that he will care for us. And then David says in verse 22, that we will never be moved. Do you remember that awful moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross His blood is oozing out of his body and spilling on the ground, and everyone is laughing at him and mocking him. And someone in the crowd shouts out, If you are the Son of God, come down. Do you remember what happens to Jesus? He doesn't move. He doesn't move. You know what Jesus is doing on the cross? How he was able to carry the cross and how he was able to stay on the cross. Because he was praying Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was praying Psalm 31, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because he was praying. He was attending to God and not simply to the world, which is too great for us. He is attending to God and not simply himself. Which is too insufficient for this world. My friends, these are the truths with which we must deal. That we are insufficient for the sorrows and sins of this world, and the sins and sorrows of this world are too great for us, but not for our God. That's the good news. Our God's grace is greater than the world's sin. This is our hope, this is our song. This is the reason for our prayer that God's grace is greater than the world's sin. So let's talk to Him. Let's talk to Him. Please pray with me. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this beautiful psalm. We thank You for the truth in this Your Word. That through Christ You have taken us And united us to yourself in love. That in Christ you have poured out into this world a grace. And a love that is transforming us and the world. Father forgive us. That we are so quickly afraid. And so completely filled with fear. And Father let us through this psalm and through our prayers recover a hope. A strength and a courage to persist. To believe that we can trust in you. O Father, awaken our faith that we might pray. And as we pray, awaken our faith. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.